Once our students have access to an AAC device, how do we ensure that they are going to be using it? And how do we ensure that caregivers are going to feel supported in that use as well? We break it all down today on episode 74 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I had a dynamic conversation with Dr. David Rayfeld. He is a wealth of information. He is an assistant professor in the Donna Nye Department of Advanced Professional and Special Services. And he's really passionate about helping students and helping those with complex communication needs. I love this part in his bio. He says when he is not actively walking alongside students, aspiring to work in the field of speech-language pathology. He is likely playing with his Labrador, reading a good book, or out on a run-jog walk, some combo of the above. I love that because that sounds a lot like me. He's super kind. We talked today about caregiver coaching to promote AAC skill acquisition. And the term caregiver doesn't mean parent. It can be whoever is in the student's environment. So we really break down how do we support our students with AAC, but how do we support teachers, parents, caregivers, RBTs, paraprofessionals. It's really practical information and something that's so very vital when we are working with learners who are using AAC to communicate with the world. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us for episode 74 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have an amazing show today. We have with us Dr. David Rayfeld. Thanks so much for joining us. It's nice to have you on. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And I think I came across your work. I think you were presenting um, in Texas about what we're going to talk about today. And I used to uh, live in Austin. So anything that happens in Texas, kind of <laughs> like I listen to, I'm back here in Ohio now, but Texas is a whole thing. It's a whole dynamic down there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I haven't met him yet. And he's duly certified. Love that. Yes. I try to meet every single unicorn that is is around. <laughs> so this is checking a box. I actually was just talking to Dr. Allie Arena. If you haven't met her, she's really, really cool. So she's duly certified as well. So, but can you tell us a little bit about you, your journey into the field, kind of what came first, SLP, BCBA, PhD as well. Amazing. Super impressed. But can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I got into the field. Um, I started as a speech path. So I got my undergrad and my first master's in speech pathology. In my first job, I worked with a lot of clients or kids who had challenging behavior and who hadn't had access to AAC before. And I recognized that I just needed a little bit more support in order to better meet their needs. And so that's when I started pursuing the dual certification and got my master's in special education, looking at uh, an emphasis in ABA to really help me better understand, again, how to meet their needs and how to work more effectively with a lot of my clients. And so then I've been practicing really ever since then, duly certified, and then went back into academia to get my PhD in educational psychology. Again, thinking my research interest is really more scholarship of teaching and learning and how we work with students, but also parents paraprofessionals, teachers, whoever needs 
collaborating with um, either on our end or on theirs so that we can better meet client needs and promote their better outcomes for them. Oh, I love that. So your first position, was it in a public school or was it in a private? I, I call it, so my history is I've always kind of worked in a public school and also now I'm calling them non-public programs, but sometimes I call them ABA centers because they really were kind of like, this This was the students' least restrictive environment because they did have a lot of behavioral barriers that are extremely unsafe. And oftentimes the reason that the kids got to go to this very special placement is because they had a parent typically um, who had a team of people that were advocating that they really needed this very, very specific instruction. And so, you know, that's really where I learned about applied behavior analysis here at the Cleveland Clinic. Now it's called the Learner School, um, but it was many, many years ago. And I always call it my autism boot camp because I remember meeting kids that were, you know, 18 and they had never had access to AAC. And I remember one student in particular that I talk about a lot, but it wasn't even my student. It was like my colleague's student. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we went back and we would like read his entire file and do kind of a case review. And we're like, it was like, made me feel dead inside that this student had had speech therapy, but they weren't able to reach the student to put it nicely. And I just, ever since then, I felt really fired up about being able to help kids using applied behavior analysis. And so it's not, so when you said that, I'm kind of curious, was it a public school or was it a private school for students who had autism or? No. So it was uh, my first placement or my first job was a public school. So just trying to, again, see these kids. I work mainly on pediatrics, but also I do emphasize more of like the school age, like elementary, middle school population. And so I was working with a lot of kids that it was like, okay, you're 10, 12, 11, 10, 12, 13, um, you know, and you have no method of functional or socially valid communication you know, despite having received interventions before and so, okay, well, what do we need to be doing to problem solve and get you access to communication that's going to get your wants and needs met that may need to require a little bit more intensive intervention, um, more collaboration, working more as like you were saying earlier, as part of a team, rather than thinking that I can change everything on my own. Um, And then I was also taking that and saying, okay, well, I'm also working with these early learners, these three and four-year-olds that I'm saying, okay, well, if we're going to be trying our more, like I'm going to really focus on verbal speech and only verbal speech, and that's where we're going to focus for until we can prove that that's not going to be your method of communication, then you're going to probably end up in the same boat where you're 11, 12, 13, and still don't have functional. So again, trying to expand into that world of AAC from the early intervention side and saying, let's let's look at what our options are. Let's try the options that are going to help us to be successful rather than trying one and then if that doesn't work after trying for several years, then we can consider some others. So I was kind of looking at it from both angles. I've got kids who weren't able to communicate despite having years of intervention and kids who were not able to communicate but hadn't yet received intervention. Mm. So trying to kind of look at it from both both sides there and look at how we could best support them so that they've got the outcomes that they and their families want for them. Absolutely. You know, if you're not a speech therapist, AAC is just ever changing and it's just so hard to stay on top of. And I'll never forget when I was getting my BCBA. So I was living down in Austin 
And I don't know if you know Kelly Rich, but she owns Central Texas Autism Center. Okay, she's really cool. She organizes this verbal behavior conference. It's kind of, I think it's in its like third or fourth year. Anyway, we had people, I had like a cohort of you know people I was doing my supervision with. And there was a, a lady who lived about an hour and a half outside of Texas. So it was a very rural area. And she said, well, the speech therapist said that so-and-so is not talking. So he's not a good candidate for speech therapy. I know. And I just, inside, I just died a little, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think that's why I feel so energetic to disseminate every day, you know, on social media and the podcast and all the things that I do, because, you know, it's, it's hard as a speech therapist, because I think that's what people don't understand is that as a speech therapist, we learn all kinds of things in graduate school. We learn about swallowing and uh, aphasia and what happens after a stroke. And then you kind of either decide you're going to be this generalist or, you know, you're going to have this niche area. And it's hard for speech therapists to stay on top of all those things, especially if you're not have all this robust professional development. So it sounds like, you know, you're really doing something that's really helping people because the thing with AAC is number one, it's always changing. And number two, people really need a lot of support to understand the assessment piece, how to provide that ongoing instruction and bed opportunities. And it's, it's a lot of work, you know, if it's not something that you're used to. And I think that's what I was seeing, you know, with some of the kids I was seeing in a non-public program, it was like, well, it was like one kid who had autism in a district very far away and they really had never met a kid like that before. And so what was unfortunate for that kid is they weren't getting that really robust instruction. And so what's so sad about some of those private centers is that the kids do tend to get older, then they have behavioral barriers because they can't communicate. Mm-hmm. And and trying to just do that antecedently and help them earlier, but it's it's just hard, you know. It depends on I think your region, the level of support you have, and things. I'm sure you you've seen that. <laughs> I'm sure you know what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about uh, caregiver coaching to promote AAC skill acquisition, which I really really love. And then, so can you tell us just the importance of you know caregiver coaching, like what that means, and as far as AAC and all that good stuff. Sure. So we're the literature is pretty clear on one of the biggest issues that we see with AAC users in general is after getting them a system, which is probably arguably one of the bigger issues itself, is that we as a field, across fields, honestly, um, we tend to do a poor job securing caregiver buy-in. And it's not because people don't want to help. It's not that the speech pathologist or the BCBA or whoever is working with the client doesn't want to help and doesn't have necessarily... Sometimes it's that we, like you were saying, don't have a lot of support available ourselves. But it's not that we don't want to help. It's not that the caregivers or the parents or the, the teachers or whoever it is, it's not that they don't want to be helpful. It's that kind of like you were saying, we don't always know where to start. And we don't And we're like, here's the AAC system. We've done the evaluation. The client is is what we're going to be working on in therapy, et cetera. And you need to be using this on a regular basis too. And we forget that this is new to the caregivers too. And that as much as I tell my students, I don't want them really thinking about AAC as this like mythical separate area of practice. I want them to be taking the tools that we use in other areas and applying them here and think about how it would be different. This is one of the big ways that it is different because if we don't have that caregiver buy-in, if we don't have that caregiver feeling supported, a lot of times what we run into is, okay, I just want you to practicing it I just want you to practice using the system during dinner, but we haven't given them the support that they need to really know what that what practicing means. Or maybe we've just selected dinner because we've said that's a really easy family routine to get into, but we haven't thought about 
the fact that there are multiple siblings in the home and that it's a single parent. And so dinner is actually probably the most chaotic time to try and be implementing it in intervention. And so when you're looking at a response, when you're looking at it from a response effort perspective, really, I'm looking at, I try to encourage students to, and my colleagues, you know, thinking about this from a response effort perspective, how do we decrease the perceived effort so that we can make the most gains? And I think caregiver coaching, when we're walking with the caregiver and saying, here's what's going well, here's what you're talking about, your needs are, here's what you're talking about, are the context that you see the biggest need for, listening to them and communicating with them in a way that says, okay, how do I meet us together? How do I bring us together so that we've got this intervention that needs to be implemented across context? But how do we do that in a way that enables you to capitalize on your strengths and minimize the things that you feel are your weaknesses or you have as weaknesses so that we're able to implement the intervention with fidelity without asking the caregiver to add an additional 40 hours to their week trying to learn how to communicate themselves using a system? Yeah. I mean, that's, I like the, the dinner example. I have three kids of my own. So that, that kind of, that hit close to home. It's chaos. That hit close to home. Yeah. And before school, you should have seen that, but you know, <laughs> it's like, it's really hard because I think sometimes, you know, in our mind, we're like, oh yeah, there's so many, I mean, opportunities at dinner and this could be great. But I think probably the BCBA in your brain, it's great that your students have you because you're thinking like really systematically, like, and I had found that too, when I was working more closely with, you know, RBTs and ABA center, it's like a lot of the programs that didn't get run were more of these naturalistic type of programs where it's not A, B, C, D. It can be, and we can make it, we can make an unstructured activity more structured. I think that's something that BCBAs are good at. Um, But sometimes just telling people those kind of general ideas, you're like, well, what do you mean? And what does that look like? And we just assume that, you know, like that level of support, you know, just needs to be more structured and ongoing. And maybe we could focus on one area for a month. You know, like I think sometimes when you're new in the field, especially as a student, you're like, oh, it has to be different. And why isn't the parent doing that? And they're not supporting us. And you're like, when you're not a parent yourself, you don't realize that it's it's chaos. Um, <laughs> it's what it is at home. So no, I love that. And so some of these strategies, you know, that you're going to talk about a little bit, um, would these be applicable? as well for supporting, you know, I work in a school and I also, um, before I started my business, you know, worked in in a public, a private school. Would these also be good strategies when we're supporting parapros or registered behavioral technicians as far as feeling comfortable and utilizing AAC? I think they can be. Um, I do like the phrase, the term caregiver, um, just to recognize that sometimes it's not a biological parent. Sometimes it's not a teacher. Sometimes it is a teacher. Sometimes it's a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist or a BCBA, like whoever. I do think that, again, at the heart of a lot of these interventions is trying to communicate with people what their values are and what the priorities are for intervention and what strengths they're bringing with them that we can capitalize on to help the intervention be successful. I do think in a lot of those situations, I've worked in in settings where you have these RBTs or you have these paraprofessionals and they have been explicitly told like your opinion doesn't matter. Your perspective isn't super important because you're just here to implement the intervention. And I think that serves to dehumanize the... Tarot. Oh my gosh. I'm yeah. sorry. that I, I, I'm sorry, everybody that's ever heard that. I mean, I kind I of think some people treat me that way as a school-based SLP, but they, like they would never voice that out loud. It's just like sure. their actions that I can tell like you don't respect my clinical expertise, so I'm not going to even say anything. But I can't believe people would actually be told that. That's horrendous. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, gosh. and I think that that 
it does. It, it serves to devalue and dehumanize the position, especially when you're looking at RBTs and paraprofessionals. You know, I'm sitting here working as a speech pathologist as the BCBA saying, you're with the client way more than I am. I need your buy-in the most. And if, because I've also worked with paraprofessionals and, and other professionals that don't think AAC is the way to go or disagree on the intervention. And that's conflict that we have to work on resolving if we're trying to establish what's going to be best for the client. And I think caregiver coaching, some of these strategies um, can be very helpful because again, the point is what's going to be best for the client and what what we need to do as a team in order to get them there. That's great. You know, one of the things that I did just kind of anecdotally is anytime my student had a new IEP and there were new communication goals, I always sat down with, um, you know, I just really love people. So this is probably easy for me, but, you know, I would always have the RBTs with me or parapros for part of the session, at least. And I would say, you know, these are the new goals. This is kind of my vision. This is what we're going to be working on and letting them know kind of the scope and sequence and why these have been chosen, because you're right. It's like, these people are with the client more more than we are. So it's so important for us to build that rapport with the one-on-one staff that are working with our students. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. so important. I mean, I do some teletherapy. It's kind of cool. I'm licensed in Washington state now. So I've been doing some consults out there for ABA providers. And it's like, you know, the RBTs are, you know, my besties online, you know, like we're, we're, we're talking, we're collaborating. It's exciting. We're talking about communication. And I think that's so important, that kind of connection with people, because if we don't have that, and then we just kind of come in and they're like, well, why are we doing that? Or what's the other thing I've seen as a barrier is people not knowing what's in the device, like a parent, a teacher saying like, Hey, can you add this? 100%. Yeah. And I would be, you know, I work in a really nice district where we have a couple classroom iPads and I would say like, this is so-and-so's pro loco, or this is so-and-so's, you know, and we did have that where we did have enough money in the district that we had a couple iPads and we had it set up. So the student's vocabulary was in there because I said, you know, if you don't go in there and feel comfortable with what's in there. Exactly. You're not going to be able to prompt it. And so, I mean, that can be a barrier too, because I remember with AAC, when I was immersed in it more, I'm kind of like, I don't know. I don't know what's in there. So then I don't know how to prompt language, but that can be nerve wracking, right? Exactly. And that's, again, like you're saying, it's one of those barriers that I think I use caregiver coaching. That's that's one of the first barriers I target. I I need you to not be afraid or overwhelmed by the system as the person who I'm asking to help implement the system with the client. And so I think that's one of the biggest barriers that we often see is that technology, like you said, it's always changing. It's ever complex. That's why I work with students on principles and systems rather than here's, you know, your specific app or this is the flavor of the day, or I'm going to teach you how to use this specific software because then we get into that's probably that may not and almost certainly is not going to be the best choice for all of your clients, but your gut and your first thought as a new clinician is going to be, this is the one that I know. And so this is what we're going to use, which is not consistent with best practice. And so again, it's hard, like you're saying, with speech paths and with BCBAs, with whoever, when there's so many different systems out there, it's overwhelming for us too. But we have to... So I tell my students, I want you to remember that because that's the parent's experience. That's the teacher's experience, especially with teachers, where you might have one kid using ProLoco to go. You might have one kid using SnapCore or TD Snap, sorry. You might have three or four different systems going on in a classroom. And think about how overwhelming that is for them when they don't have the specific coursework and the specific practica that you have gone through to get you to this point. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's a lot when you think about it. Yeah. It can be overwhelming. (laughs) So I know we're going to talk a little bit about behavioral skills training. So for those, um, you know, we have a mix of people that listen. So some SLPs, BCBAs, parents, can you give us kind of a working definition of what BST or behavioral skills training is? Sure. I think I would like to respond to that by just saying that behavioral skills training is just an evidence-based practice for providing instruction. And so really the thought is that it's this model that a lot of us are familiar with where we're just putting a name to it. We're putting a fancy name to something that a lot of us always do. Mm -hmm. And by putting a name to it, we are specifically saying that it's going to involve some specific things that are necessary components for us to not ensure success because we can't ever ensure success, but to facilitate success um, for skill mastery. Hmm. Yeah, I love that very much. Uh, Very important. So how can we use then this kind of framework when we are coaching caregivers? What would that look like with AAC? Sure. So with behavioral skills training in general, we have this four-phase model um, and you, you hear different words used for it, but it essentially comes down to Phase one, I need you to understand what we're working on and why it's important. You know, you've got that hook, like you were talking about with professionals or RBTs. I need you to understand the scope and sequence. I need you to understand why I'm asking you to do this. Phase two, looking at, okay, I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to provide you that model. Phase three, I'm going to allow you, encourage you, and support you as you rehearse this skill or set of skills um, under my supervision so that I can phase four, provide that feedback to you. So it's, it's this kind of four phase model. Um, and so especially when you apply it to AAC, we're looking at, okay, what skill do we need to learn right now? Why is it important? What word are we targeting? Kind of like you were saying with vocabulary, if I want you to find and get comfortable with like a core word of the week is a common approach that, that I see used. I just want you to focus on finding one word and using it. And here's why we're going to do that. Then I'm going to show you where it is, and we're going to then practice it in these contexts, ideally with the learner, so that if there's things that are going wrong or there's things that kind of end up as hangups or that the parent or the caregiver is likely to encounter when they're off without me, I'm able to sit there and problem solve through that with them. So we tell them what the skill is and why it's important. We show them how to do it, and we allow them to practice that in a space that allows them to be successful. And we're providing them that feedback on, okay, yes, you're implementing it correctly. Here's how you're. Here's what you're doing well. Here's how you should adjust it, so that we get them to this level of mastery, ideally ninety percent or greater, depending on the the skill that's being taught, so that they're able to then take that and implement it in different settings. And the literature on BST is pretty robust. It's been used for a variety of um, populations, ranging from clients with intellectual disabilities all the way to college-level students implementing coursework. And so it's it's a very robust, it's very flexible to meeting the needs of different people. And I think that's the beauty of implementing it within a caregiver coaching framework is it's so flexible that we're able to really work with the caregivers on what their needs are and then design a program that meets those needs so that they're able to better support the learner um, as part of the team as a whole. Yeah, I love that. And the idea, you know, what I always try to do in both settings that I worked in is mm-hmm. have a pair pro or RBT stay with me for just a part of the session so that, yes. and I worked in, and I'm really, you know, lucky and probably I chose these places to work in, but, you know, like <laughs> I had a lot of really supportive people. You know, I wasn't dealing with personalities. I mean, not more in the past 10 years, definitely in the beginning of my career where people didn't want to sit with me or they, you know, left or it was their break time. And I, I understand it. And I like to validate 
educate people. And that definitely speech can definitely be seen as a break time for other staff. And I totally get that. But just for part of the session, because I kind of loosely use that BST where, okay, I'm modeling this communication. Maybe I have the pair pro there. And I think it's nice to have that time of a dialogue of like, just like you're saying, like, well, this came up or how do I deal with that? And kind of being the support person, because the idea is like, it's really ongoing. And I, I think what's hard sometimes for, for adults is it's like to give another adult feedback. Now, mm-hmm. like I've had enough administrative positions or kind of what I'm doing now, but sometimes something will happen even in my own business at ABA Speech. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I need to tell somebody something that needs to be done differently. Or like my social media manager, you know, did a boo-boo and I need to like tell them. And it can be hard for adults to give that feedback. But what I always tell people when I train about BST is like, when you're helping this person learn about AAC, it's like, you're not just helping them with this one student. It's like, it's like ripple effect where maybe it's a pro, and it's like, maybe they're going to work with like 40 kids with autism over their career. And if you say something now, you're helping them build their competency and you're going to help so many more kids. But have you found that that's kind of hard, maybe even with your students where it's like hard for an adult to give another adult feedback that can be tricky. Yes. And I think that that is, again, within this caregiver coaching framework, really understanding the context in which we're learning and trying to apply these skills. Like you were saying, sometimes having that additional staff member in the room means I need this time to take a breath. I need this time to take a break. And if that's where we're at, I respect it. And I don't want to push too hard. I do want us to get to a point, like you're saying, where we can not necessarily co-treat because I, I would be the one providing the services, but we can. I can provide the services at least in proximity to other providers or other caregivers so that they're able to see what I'm doing. So that's part of the modeling. Mm-hmm. And then we can get into the rehearsal where, okay, I'm going to stay over a little bit today as, I'm, as we're transitioning over, you know, speeches quote unquote, officially done, but I'll stay over and just kind of watch implementation so that if you have questions, I can be here to facilitate and provide that feedback. So we're really kind of informally using that BST model. And I found that it's actually really helpful once we've secured that buy-in and once people understand that I'm there really to help them and the learner that I've had a pair, I've had paraprofessionals before, you know, as I'm working being like, oh, hey, that actually reminded me we ran into this situation last week and it is kind of related to the use of the system. And I'm like, okay, cool. Now let's problem solve that. You know, I can use our session. We can work on that so that now I'm meeting that need for you. And if I'm meeting that need for you, that's one less barrier for you working with the client. And it makes your life easier, which makes you happier, which I love because happier people are going to be, in my experience, more willing to collaborate with me. And when I say, okay, now here's the really hard thing I need for us to stop using one word utterances and expand into two, or I need us to really emphasize morphology for whatever reason, like with this learner specifically, and it's going to be more work for you. I found that they're more willing to collaborate on that and put in that extra effort because I've been willing to say, let's meet your needs too. Let's make your life easier as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's cool too to what I try to do in sessions too is try to show, um, even with parents, is like, wow, that was so cool. Like, so today we did this, Mm -hmm. and these are all the spontaneous utterances they made. And this is so Mm -hmm. cool because sometimes we as speech therapists are like, yeah, that was amazing. And we may not verbalize that, but I think those kind of small things are exciting 
to share because then you're building a connection with that caregiver and you're like, wow, isn't this cool? You know, but sometimes we have to like overtly say those things because it's not always, you know, out there in the open. And sometimes you have to celebrate those. I think speech therapists are really great about celebrating the small wins that are much larger yes. and, and BCBAs too, you know, I'm not. But I am, um, especially when it comes to, I mean, sometimes I'll be honest, sometimes on my data sheets, I'll make a note to myself. Like I really like the catch me doing something good kind of model. Um, and, but I'm, I forget about it because I'm like, oh, you know, this is a great win for us, but whatever, or like, yay, they're using the thing that I asked them to do. And I, like you're saying, I kind of check it. Yay. That's a box off in my head. Right. But I sometimes have to write myself a note. Like when you see those things, like make sure you call them out and reinforce that and praise that and ask how you can ask how I can facilitate that continuing to happen or, you know, those types of things. Because again, sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just that acknowledgement that, serves as that verbal reinforcement or that social reinforcement to say, I love it. We're in this together. You're doing great and you're doing things well. Right. Yeah, no, that's great. So when you, with the BST and the caregiver coaching, I'm wondering, do you have your students or what are your thoughts on, do you have them write anything down or what does that kind of documentation look like? Are you giving, Mm -hmm. are you giving the caregiver anything? Um, I'm just wondering kind of what that looks like. Sure. So I do, especially with students and early career professionals, I think writing it down is always going to be best because we want to have that script that we can operate from. And then if we're using, if we're operating off of that, I think that it's helpful to also share that with the caregivers. So they have that permanent product of here's your takeaway and you can take notes on it as well to facilitate your learning and retrieval. Um, so that when you get home and are trying to do this during the chaos of bath time or during the chaos of just like existing in life, that you're like, oh no, I don't remember. You've got those notes that you have taken that, but I gave you the framework for. I do think that's helpful. I think it's helpful, especially when you're looking at the task analysis side, really understanding it can be overwhelming in the moment to be providing this instructional feedback rather than just jumping in and doing. So if we have it written out beforehand, it gives us a framework to be more successful in the moment in the training, but it also gives whoever we're working with, whatever professional or uh, other caregiver that we're working with, it gives them something that they can take away. And that we can then say later, if we see some of the skills starting to be implemented a little with a little bit less fidelity, or we're seeing some questions or something, we can then refer them to the notes that they've taken and say, hey, don't forget you still have that. And if you've lost it, I can give you another copy or something, but you have that. So you don't have to wait for me to show up next week or two days from now, you can refer to that. If you don't, if it doesn't answer your question, you can make a note in this and, you know, those types of things. I think it, I think it's 100% helpful to have stuff written out, um, both for us as trainers, as well as the caregivers. Yeah. I like that. That's a good idea. I mean, even when I had a new home client, like a year ago, it was like a toddler and he had autism. Um, he had high support needs and I was like, it was very old school Rose. I was like writing down my whole data sheet, like very, you know, much like we're going to do this and then this, and then this, you know, and now it's more loose. I just saw the student this morning, but, um, and then I would always give the parents something. Cause I think that is, it's kind of like when I go to the doctor or like I go do anything or for my kids, it's like, you're like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. Got it. Got it. And then you get home and you're like, what happened? (laughs) What was I supposed to do? They said something and I forget. And then, and then there you go. Um, Oh my gosh, such great information. So where can people find out more about you, your work, if they have a follow-up question? Sure. So um, I work at the University of Central Oklahoma, so they can look me up that way. I 
also currently adjunct for Baylor with some of their coursework as well. And so I'm happy to help if I can. I recognize that also, though, like ethically there, you know, I can't respond to specific clinical scenarios and that type of thing. But there are plenty of conferences and conventions out there. Um, I One of my big things is trying to disseminate information to the public as well as other professionals. So I do really try to attend a lot of conferences and a lot of conventions and present on topics like this. Like you were saying, for those the clinicians that may not have direct support available to them, giving them access to further tools that they have available in their belt um, so that they they are able to be a better resource for their clients. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It was really nice to meet you. No problem. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.